Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Bank of Japan Governor Haruhiko Kuroda said that he's going to let a key interest rate increase by a tenth of a percentage point, but otherwise he's sticking to the bank's ultra-easy monetary policy. That seems to defy a global trend toward tightening. Here to tell us about this is Jeff Usher. He is head of research for Japan Insider. They're based in Jeffersonville, New York. Jeff Usher, thanks very much for being with us. Tell us about this move or non-move by the Bank of Japan. What does it mean? Well, I think what it really means is uh, we're going to have uh, what they call quant- quantitative and qualitative easing forever. Um, the uh, the key point that was in uh, today's meeting was that uh, the Bank of Japan is going to be unable to meet its 2% inflation target at least until the end of March of 2021 and probably even further. So because we've had such uh, easy money for so long, it's putting pressure on Japanese banks, and it's also affecting the uh, Japanese government bond market. And so uh, what they did today is essentially apply a few tweaks to allow them to keep uh, QQE in place for uh, at least another three years. Jeff, I'd love to talk about the Japanese economy, because by a lot of measures, it's doing really well. I mean, the job market is the best since 1974. Uh, Uh, There do appear to be some very small shoots of inflation. So what's the Bank of Japan waiting for here? Well, um, I think they're just waiting for, um, you know, the overall inflation to uh, to get up towards 2%. I mean, my personal view is that 2% is actually a pretty unrealistic target. Uh, that, you know, if you look at a chart of inflation going back 30 years, the only time they've hit that is when you've had a consumption tax increase, and that's not really the kind of inflation that you want. So, uh, you know, the job market is great. We're getting a lot of uh, older workers, post-retirement workers, a lot more women entering the workforce, but uh, wages are not rising as quickly as you'd expect because most of the new people coming into the workforce actually get paid less than the full-time workers. Jeff, you were the first non-Japanese individual to work on the floor of the Tokyo Stock Exchange back in 1978, correct? Yes, Mm -hmm. when they had a floor. Okay, can you explain to people how the Japanese economy is different than, let's say, the economy in the United States and its relationship to, let's say, uh, Japanese government debt? Uh, people are very worried about uh, Japanese government debt, and I think that um, you know one of the issues here is that uh, unlike the U.S., most Japanese government debt is owned, owned excuse me, by Japanese, and so you don't really have to worry about um, capital flight. Uh, the in fact. There's a real shortage of long-term debt right now because, uh, again, the Japanese economy has been very wealthy for a very long time, and uh, insurance companies, uh, the GPIF, which is the government pension fund, uh, all of these big investors really don't have a lot of places to put uh, yen to work in, in the domestic market. So, um, you know, I think as far as the economy goes, 
uh, it's a very diversified economy, much different from, say, uh, the Chinese market or other emerging markets. And in many ways, uh, people might be surprised to hear that it's similar to the U.S. and that Japan's dependence on exports is uh, about the same as the United States. It's only about uh, 17 or 18 percent of GDP, where, say, a, a country like Germany uh, relies on about on exports for about 40 percent of their GDP. The the reason why people have been watching Japan so closely recently, I mean, not not to mention that it's one of the major economies of the world, but also because it was clear that the Bank of Japan's moves are having a pretty significant impact on global bond yields. I mean, even the sort of suspicion that they might make some sort of policy tweak last night uh, sent longer term yields in the U.S. and Germany higher. That has obviously reversed as they showed that they were not willing to make those tweaks um, the idea that you're saying QE forever to me indicates that will be a consistent and ongoing pressure on yields globally. Uh, do you see it that way? Yeah, absolutely. There's there's no doubt about it. Um, Japanese investors uh, are being forced to put more of their money overseas, and in a sense, it makes it a very easy trade because. Uh, if you know that the BOJ is going to be keeping interest rates pretty much where they are for at least the next three years, but let's say uh, yields in the U.S. or Germany uh, are rising, um, you know, you're just going to get wider spreads between Japan and, uh, you know, the U.S. and Europe, and that's going to attract more Japanese uh, outflows to these markets. And uh, again, as those spreads widen, it becomes uh, much more profitable for Japanese investors to hedge their uh, currency as well. So that makes it even easier for them to, to put more money, let's say, into 10-year treasuries. Jeff, does this, uh, based on your analysis, do you see the Japanese yen weakening against the U.S. dollar? Um, just marginally. I actually think uh, dollar-yen is pretty much stuck in a trading range. Um, I think that, you know, we're kind of trading between 107 at the low end and 113 at the uh, upper end. And uh, honestly, if you look at how the Japanese economy operates, if the yen gets a whole lot weaker than, say, 115, it's actually bad for the domestic economy. Because don't forget, Japan imports all of its food, all of its energy. And so, um, you know, once once you start raising those import prices, you leave less money available for discretionary purchases, like say refrigerators, yeah. and uh, that that keeps the economy's uh, you know, consumption weak. Jeff Usher, thank you so much for being with us. Jeff Usher, head of research at Japan Insider, uh, talking about that uh, BOJ decision that we got overnight, definitely causing a reversal of some of the yield curve widening. Now we are getting flattening once again. Apple reports its results after the close of trading today. And here to help us understand what to expect is our own John Butler. He is our senior telecom services and equipment analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Please follow John on Twitter, as we all do, at John underscore Butler 25. All right, John underscore Butler 25. Revenue, annual revenue for Apple in the neighborhood of $250 billion dollars. What are you going to be looking for when Apple reports results after the close? 
I am looking at services, which includes the App Store, and I'm looking at the other products category, which includes AirPods and HomePod and Apple Watch. And together, those two divisions are really driving future growth at Apple, right? If you look at the current quarter, we're in a very good iPhone cycle right now. People expect iPhone revenue to be up 15% year on year. Same with the the total growth at Apple. We should get top line growth in that same range. But as you look down the road, this is a company in transition from a hardware-centric model to a much more balanced model of hardware and software sales so, or services. Sales. So that's the important thing right now is to show is for Apple to show people that it is successfully diversifying away from the iPhone. Yes, because all iPhone sales or close to all iPhone sales now are coming from existing users who are upgrading to new phones, better phones, so it's driving decent sales. But what you really want is to leverage that platform to sell services and to sell your other products that work well now with the iPhone. All right. Now, you know, in the interest of uh, trying to find an expert uh, to sort of really put the questions to you, because we know that, you know, we are a little older in the demographic uh, for the (laughs) iPhone and the Apple products. We have uh, uh, a guest here in the studio, Zeke Abramowitz, who uh, is uh, nine years old and, you know, it's always good to go right to the to the customer when when you know, I agree customer, right when they, I so Zeke, agree. You know, I know pays that, the bills hmm. yeah well yeah mother pays the bills <laughs> parents pay the bills but Zeke I know you have a question for John Butler because you are an Apple aficionado go ahead ask John a question why are so many people buying apps <laughs> you know it it's what I was just talking about a moment ago which is the software and the services matter most now. And so people love playing games on their phones. So if you take a look around the train at night, everyone has a game up on their phone. And that's about Are they paying for those games though? And and do do Apple do Apple customers pay for games versus Android users? Uh, I'm not a gamer, so I'm going to say well, or not. apps in general. There, there I mean, are... because I think there's that note that Apple users they're more willing to actually spend money. Yes, yeah, so so people are spending up, and a third of App Store sales are games, believe it or not. And the App Store is growing over thirty percent a year. Or it seems so because if you look at services as a whole, it's growing well over thirty percent. So. Um, Back to the question, why do people, are people buying games on the iPhone? The answer is yes. And uh, it really is driving growth at Apple. How do they make, the the I guess, you know, it's sort of interesting. Uh, I was reading a story, and frankly, this was something that Zeke and I were talking about this morning, uh, that there were some reports that Fortnite, that the popularity has actually helped Apple. And the question is, when you have a free game like that, how does it translate to money? For Apple, how does Apple profit from these games? That's a great question. I'm not quite sure, except to say you make in game purchases of sort of added items for your character in the game. So, Fortnite is actually generating a lot of revenue as people buy these sort of ancillary shields and swords and all this stuff. And I have to believe, given Apple's model of charging 30% roughly for all app store sales, app sales, uh, they're probably making a portion of that. So that may help them. 
What's the breakdown right now? Or, and what are you looking for in terms of services versus iPhone sales with respect to the uh, share of revenue for Apple? So I, I, I'll i go back to that thought of I look at services and other products together because the other products are all the new products, including AirPods and HomePod and so forth. And together with services, they're over 20% of revenue, or they were last quarter, they were close to 22% of total sales. That's versus the iPhone at over 60% of sales. But over time, you'll see that mix shift. And that's very important because those services and other products are more profitable than the iPhone. And so it'll boost not only the top line and help to buoy growth on the top line, but it's going to fuel bottom line growth. So that is a key factor. And I... Notice the street is focused on it more and more every quarter. You can just hear it in the Q&A. Zeke has another question for John. Are many people buying the Apple Watch? Yes, the Apple Watch is doing quite well. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I, I think it's fair to say that has been a real hit product for them, and it's here to stay for a while. It's hurt a lot of the watch companies, hasn't it? Uh, I'm not sure on that. It's in a different category. It probably has hurt Fitbit and some of the sport and fitness watches. Um, Do you I think, think that Rolex combined with the new? For now, yeah, so. ro- yes, okay, that uh, a given. But it, just to connect that with the facial uh, ID recognition that is coming with all of the new Apple iPhones, combine that with the watch. Can we see personalized medical? Uh, information coming to a a digital assistant near us? I actually would love to see that. And health and fitness is a big silo that Apple is is very focused on. They haven't made as much headway as, as you would think. I mean, I look at the world of healthcare and how you could really leverage that iPhone and watch combination to take advantage of that and grow your business there. So stay tuned. I think there's more to come on that front. Well, it should be interesting to see whether Apple can give people a sense of confidence that big tech in the U.S. is here to stay, because certainly people are starting to worry about that. So this is going to be the moment of truth upon us at 4.30 p.m. Eastern time today. I think the stuff that ailed Facebook and Google is not in Apple's wheelhouse, so they may be safe there, but we'll see. We will see. John Butler, thank you so much, as always, for being with us. John Butler, Senior Telecom Services and Equipment Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. The leveraged loan market is the sister asset class to the U.S. junk bond market, but it has grown so quickly that it has now eclipsed the bond market. And a lot of people are wondering, has it gone too far too fast? Here to talk about that, Jim Schaefer, co-head of Public Fixed Income and Deputy Chief Investment Officer at Aegon USA Asset Management, uh, managing over $100 billion. He comes to us from Chicago. Uh, Jim, a lot of focus is on the collateralized loan obligation part of this world. Just before we get into talking about about this issue, what is a collateralized loan obligation? Well, it's a structured vehicle. First off, thanks for having me. Uh, it's a structured vehicle where the collateral is loans and you have a capital structure that's tranched and the, the investors invest whether they want to own the AAAs, the AA, or all the way down to the equity component of the capital structure. It's just it's the tranched vehicle where the loans are the collateral 
and there's a series of investors, and you as the manager buy loans, and they, as the investor, get a return profile depending on where they are in the capital structure. And as far as the actual loans are concerned, how do they differ significantly from bonds? Shorter life, shorter maturities? Yeah, I mean, they're, number one, they're not securities, first off, so they're, they're, their governance provisions are a little bit different. But generally speaking, they don't have call protection, and they're generally floating rate obligations. So they reset on LIBOR, and then they can be refinanced at any time. And those are the two fundamental key, key aspects that the market focuses on. Okay, so sort of fast-forwarding to today, we've seen record issuance in recent years in the leveraged loan space with the market uh, surpassing a trillion dollars, and a lot of it's been driven by these CLOs that basically package loans uh, into bonds. Is this market getting frothy right now? Well, let's, let's step back for a minute. I mean, you, the demand makes sense because you've got a floating rate obligation and you've got a potential for a rising rate environment and you have strong fundamentals. And so the strong fundamental picture makes the default environment remain low and that gets borrowers comfortable that they're going to invest in lower quality credits like high yield bonds or leveraged loans. And you've got a floating rate component that can protect you against rising rates. So the demand makes sense. Is the market getting sloppy? Well, what you see as you move later in any business cycle and you see a supply, demand, and balance. So we see a lot of demand for this floating rate asset class. And that, because of that, borrowers can take advantage of that. They can take advantage of that because they can get better pricing, better covenants, and really push the envelope, if you will, on that, those two elements. And so does it get sloppy? Well, it gets more aggressive. And you lose covenant protections. You, lose, you get a lot of really, you know, really aggressive pricing. So you're the risk to the downside becomes slightly higher. And if you do see a market turn, and we don't, look, we're comfortable with fundamentals. We don't think the market's going to, we don't see defaults picking up in the near term. But when it does, the, the types of transactions get, that get done later in a cycle in more of an aggressive form are the ones that cause some concern. So you could see, you could be sowing the seeds of a more, a, a more a, of, of the next wave of defaults. And the market can, tends to get a little bit sloppier as it gets later in the cycle. So, uh, Jim, there was an article on the Bloomberg uh, yesterday talking about how there does seem to be an increasing amount of caution, I guess you would say, on the part of some banks, certainly uh, releasing reports that note some of the issues with the leveraged loan market. Are you also seeing it in terms of their supplying you with credit lines for uh, leveraged loan investments or warehouse housing loans? What are you seeing on that front? Yeah, so what we saw, you know, we saw tremendous uh, demand for collateralized loans and a willingness from providers in the capital structure to be, you know, very active participants. There's been, you know, the CLO demand has been extremely strong for what I mentioned, floating on assets, strong fundamentals, uh, and, and so you'd expect that. As we went to do our next CLO, we saw in the warehouse facilities where you ramp up, you buy loans to ramp up for the next issuance of a CLO, we saw a little bit of a pause from a few of the providers. And I don't know if that's a function of the aggressiveness of the structures or just there had been such a, 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 a strong amount of issuance in the first part of the year, really for the last year, they're just stepping back and taking a little bit of pause to say, okay, let's, let's take a look at this market. But generally speaking, a little bit of a pause is what we saw. So you're seeing a little bit more caution on behalf of banks that would have to pay more money to hold onto assets that become riskier. In other words, uh, there does seem to be a little bit more risk aversion or hard to say. I don't know if that's the right I don't know if that's the right way to look at it actually. I, I'd say what we saw is in those who provide warehouses, so warehouse facilities, when you're ramping up a CLO, there's a period of time you need to aggregate a number of loans that you get the scale you need then to issue the CLO. In the warehouse facilities, and there's still demand, there's still interest in warehouse. It just was not as much as we had seen the last 
12 months previously. So you, those providers of warehouse decisions allow you to ramp up and put loans that you can then issue the CLO. There were just not as many people interested in doing that piece of the, that piece of the, of the puzzle, if you will. So these warehouse providers, they don't have the inventory that they previously had. Is that accurate? Well, it, I wouldn't use inventory of loans. We're in the market as the manager buying the loans and putting them in the warehouse facility. They're the ones backstopping, if you will, taking the first loss piece or backstopping or providing the capital to support the warehouse. Got it. They're the ones that took a little bit of a pause. So it's not, they don't, there's not, you know, they actually the supply in the loan market picked up a little bit. Uh, recently, and, I, and again, that, so that supply-demand imbalance we saw for the 12 months previously where you had a lot of demand from the CLO marketplace and really the mutual fund marketplace, and okay supply or decent supply in the loan market, that supply-demand imbalance that gave borrowers a lot of, you know, the ability to really, you know, drive lower pricing and better covenant protections or more beneficial covenant protections for them. That changed a little bit because the, and now if the warehouse providers pause a little bit, it kind of goes the other way where there's slightly less of an ability to do more CLOs, and thus that strong technical support we've seen in loans slows a little bit, and you've had a lot of, you know, a lot of loans come in at price that are priced very aggressively. If demand falls just a little bit, you can see those, price, those loans back up a little bit. But just the last thing I'd say from that is, from our perspective, that would be kind of welcome. We wouldn't mind seeing loans back up, because we're still pretty comfortable fundamentally with the loan market and the underlying borrowers. But pricing has gotten, you get the aggressive when you see that supply-demand imbalance. So, Jim, I'd love to broaden out here and sort of put loans in the perspective of the fixed income spectrum. What are you seeing that you really like right now? And where do you see uh, the least attractive investments within fixed income? <laughs> That's an interesting question. I mean, I think the fixed income marketplace, gives a weird, it, it kind of depends on your outlook for rates. Um, you know, we actually have become a little more comfortable with high-yield bonds right now. We've seen a kind of a... You know, we are our total return expectation for high yield bonds in the first of this year was, you know, three, four, five percent. We saw kind of a flat first half of the year. A lot of it driven to the big, the big move in rates, the big jump in the tenure, and it got people a little bit concerned about how the velocity of the rate move. But as that's leveled out a little bit, we now see that the high yield asset because defaults remain low, fundamentals remain strong. We think that could be an interesting asset class the back half of the year. We don't mind the leverage loan uh, asset class as well. It's it's been on a very consistent return pattern this year. We thought it was going to be a 4 to 5% total return year. With, and it really, we saw that the first half of the year was up, you know, two and a half odd percent. And we kind of expect that to continue. So we, although we really like loans to start with a little more balance there, but like high yield, we like some of the structured asset classes. You know, we, we're a, the Aegon is a, is across the fixed income spectrum. We've got a deep focus on research across both not only, um, not only credit, but right. also structured asset classes. So we like the structured asset classes a lot. Uh, I think there's some value there. We got to um, leave it there. Jim Schaefer, thank you very much for being with us. Co-head of Public Fixed Income, Deputy Chief Investment Officer for Aegon USA Asset Management, helping to manage over $300 billion worldwide.
President Trump's administration is considering going around Congress and granting a $100 billion tax cut mainly to the wealthiest individuals in the United States. This according to a New York Times report. Uh, we want to find out more, so we're going to turn to Andrew Maeda. He's global trade and economy reporter for Bloomberg News, as well as Andrew Silverman, government analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, Andrew Maeda, thank you so much uh, for joining us from D.C. What is this that we're talking about here? Yeah, so the Times spoke to Secretary Mnuchin at the G20, and uh, he indicated that the Treasury Department is looking at potentially allowing people to account for inflation uh, in calculating capital gains uh, taxes. I mean, what does that mean in plain English? What it means in plain English is if I bought uh, $100 worth of stock, say, five years ago, if I can account for inflation, uh, it might actually be worth 150 uh, in present terms. And that means that the tax hit that I take is going to be lower. So that's that's what they're considering. Andrew Silverman, just a follow up. Would this affect both short term and long term capital gains? Uh, lately, uh, just uh, long term capital gains, short term capital gains are taxed at the ordinary income tax rate. So Andrew Silverman, can you give us a sense of whether this has been tried before and what the pros and cons are for this? Well, so this has been suggested before. President H.W. Bush uh, thought about doing this in 1992. There was a, a memorandum that was written by a, a few lawyers in, in Washington uh, at Shaw Pittman, that are now uh, uh, Pillsbury Winthrop. Um, and uh, they, they suggested that uh, uh, it, was, it was perfectly legal. Um, and the, the president um, considered this, uh, talked to Treasury about it. They actually decided against it. Uh, but when Bob Dole ran for president in 1996, he said that he wanted to do this by fiat. And uh, those lawyers who wrote the memorandum in, in, um, uh, in 1989 then reissued it in 2012, um, saying that they still supported the idea and thought it was perfectly legal. Andrew Maeda, uh, just to run down the capital gains uh, tax structure right now, it has to do with where you fall in terms of your income, right? Uh, if you make, let's say, I think over what, what $425,000 a year as a single taxpayer, you're going to pay the 20%. Long-term, long-term capital gains. Is that accurate? Well, I'm not a tax expert, so I'm going to pass on that question. Uh, but I will say, I mean, there's no question that uh, this is going to primarily uh, benefit the wealthy. And, uh, you know, you have to remember the context of this. This is coming months before midterm elections. Uh, if you look at a tax plan that is going to potentially have more appeal to voters, uh, Chairman uh, Kevin Brady, uh, the Republican chairman of the Tax, uh, the the House Ways and Means Committee came out with a plan that, to me, I think sounds a little bit more palatable to the electorate. He said he proposed, for example, just uh, making permanent the tax cuts that uh, the Republican Party uh, passed earlier this year. So that seems to me like a little bit more of a vote winner than than this type of tax, which is which will primarily benefit the wealthy. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. I don't really understand how this appeals to sort of the populist movement that President Trump kind of is uh, known for aiming at. Andrew Silverman, I guess I'm struggling to understand what's the economic benefit that that they argue uh, is achieved by this tax cut? Well, I think that uh, you can spin it a, a number of different ways, but you know, you can say it's a, it's um, a sop to the wealthy, and certainly 
a lot of wealthy people are investors and would benefit from this. But it's also a benefit to 401ks and pension funds, and that helps all of us. So it's not necessarily something that just helps the wealthy. It, it really helps everybody that's an investor. It hurts the government well, because they on. collect less revenue. Andrew Maeda, can you jump on in here? I mean, what's the economic sort of throwdown on this? Is there some kind of consensus on whether this is helpful or hurtful for the economy, this kind of uh, policy? Well, it's it's a good question. I mean, uh, you know, in the New York Times article, uh, I read that uh, somebody is justifying this on the idea that uh, you know people would be buying and selling more assets. Uh, but generally speaking, when economists look at the biggest bang for the buck, they're looking at measures that actually increase income or increase consumption. Uh, so you know, all other things being equal, you're probably going to get more of a bang for the buck by doing something that benefits you know, the lower class or the middle class, people who have less disposable income. So um, I don't know, I guess the jury, the jury would still be out on exactly what, which type of approach would, would generate more of an economic uh, boost. Andrew Silverman, just quickly, uh, you said 401ks and IRAs would be uh, favorably treated. Why is that? Because when you withdraw the money from them, it'll be at a lower tax rate? Well, they're investors. They're large investors. Uh, yeah, but CalPERS. they don't have any tax consequences, right? I mean, it's all tax deferred. But their investors do. At, when they take the money out, you mean? Th that's right. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. All right. So when you withdraw, let's say, from the 401k or you end up withdrawing from their IRA, you take the minimum distribution, whatever it is, then you would end up paying less because the actual investment would be indexed to inflation as a result of this potential change. That's exactly right. So, so uh, uh, like like Andrew was saying, if you invest uh, $100 you know, 30 years ago and it goes up to $110, um, uh, uh, and and uh, you know if you have gains of you know $110, uh, you have no um, no capital gains tax if you index it to inflation. Well done. All right. Thanks very much for explaining this, uh, gentlemen. Uh, Andrew Silverman, our government analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, and Andrew Maeda, our global trade and economy reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us from our Washington bureau. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.